Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major, Lindsay, and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major, Lindsay, and Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives, and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is Nona Lee. Nona is currently the founder and CEO of Truth DEI Consulting, where she helps organizations determine current and future growth opportunities and strategies in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Prior to founding Truth DEI Consulting, Nona was the Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer for the Arizona Diamondbacks Major League Baseball franchise, overseeing all legal issues for the organization. In addition to her legal duties with the Diamondbacks, Nona led the organization's internal and external DEI efforts as chair of the DBACs for Change, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Council. Before dedicating her time solely to the Diamondbacks, she served as Associate General Counsel and Vice President for the Phoenix Suns, Diamondbacks, Phoenix Mercury, Arizona Rattlers, Chase Field, U.S. Airway Center, and Dodge Theater. Nona is active in the Phoenix community and in the sports industry, currently serving on the board of directors and as past president of the Sports Lawyers Association, a nonprofit international professional organization whose common goal is the understanding, advancement, and ethical practice of sports law. Nona also serves on the board of the National LGBTQ Bar Association, is an arbitrator on the American Arbitration Association Sports Law and Commercial Business Panels, and serves as a member of the NTAA's Independent Resolution Panel. She is the founder of the Phoenix Women's Sports Association, an Arizona nonprofit whose mission is to help girls and women find their power through sports, and is a trustee emeritus of the Women's Sports Foundation in New York, a nonprofit organization founded by Billie Jean King that is dedicated to advancing the lives of girls and women through sports and physical activity. Nona resides in Phoenix, Arizona with her wife, Andrea, and their dogs, Jazz and Ripley. Nona, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise. Well, if you don't mind me saying so, I think you're kind of a badass. Um, <laughs> in, in reviewing your, your bio and all the things about you, um, you've always been athletic. Uh, uh, you medaled in swimming in the Junior Olympics. You played basketball competitively throughout high school. You were so good that you walked on to the Pepperdine women's basketball team in college and earned yourself a basketball scholarship uh, after the first year. And after playing all four years and graduating with a bachelor's degree in broadcasting, you got into Oklahoma City University School of Law and performed so well academically and at such a high level that they offered you a full scholarship, not too shabby. Um, you obtained your Juris Doctor Summa Cum Laude and received recognition from the School of Graduate of the Year. So darn, that's that's something, that's quite the path. Um, and then you took a job as a litigator in Phoenix. You were practicing as a litigator in Phoenix um, and had this fortuitous opportunity to attend a WNBA game where uh, it sounds like your your life changed and started to, to take a different path. 
um, because you decided that you needed to merge your practice as an attorney with your passion for sports. Uh, you decided you wanted to be an in-house counsel of a pro sports team. But uh, based on our prior conversation, it didn't go perfectly smoothly at first. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you made that initial leap from law firm to in-house? Sure, you know, um, and you're, you're right. The trigger for me was the WNBA starting. And, um, you know, there was just a knowing for me, a uh, very strong feeling that um, I, I needed to be working in sports. And so uh, I, made, I did the research to find out what the opportunities were to work as a lawyer in sports because it was never on my radar at all until the WNBA started. And, um, you know, ultimately decided that uh, I, I wanted to be in-house counsel for a sports team. And after speaking with the then general counsel for the Suns, um, you know, and I should say that as I was doing my exploration about the opportunities in sport, I first asked uh, the managing partner at the law firm where I was, um, and it wasn't just me, it was another woman, a woman partner at the time. We went to him and asked to start a sports law practice there and he told us no. And so that's what triggered me to look further and um, spoke with the general counsel of the Phoenix Suns and uh, who I'd known. She was actually a corporate associate at the firm I was at um, a year ahead of me and she'd left and I wasn't clear on where she'd gone. And found out that that's where she was with the Phoenix Sun. So I gave her a call and said, how I, I do what you do. And she uh, spoke to me at length, but was very clear with me that I was unqualified um, to be general counsel for sports teams because I was a litigator. And primarily what general counsel do in-house is, is transactional in nature. And so, you know, I was pretty determined, especially after talking to her about the experience about, you know, I was, I was very determined to to uh, switch directions, essentially, and get started on the path. So I decided to uh, research what firms in town represented the sports teams and got interviews with both of them and got a job offer from one. And about a week after I accepted their offer, they they called me and asked me to come down and talk to them. And, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what they wanted. I was pretty, pretty, uh, you know, nervous because I thought they were sending the offer. What do they want? And I, I went down and met with them and they told me the general counsel for the Suns, who I'd spoken with, was leaving and asked if I wanted an opportunity to inter interview for the position. And, uh, you know, her having told me I was completely unqualified just... You know, months before, I said, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they, they brought me into the firm and partnered me with two amazing uh, women partners to begin learning transactional practice and uh, set up interviews for me with the Suns and Diamondbacks. And they were jointly owned at the time, the two teams. And I went through the interview process and did not get the job. Uh, and, you know, I was disappointed, but not entirely surprised. But um, then... Uh, you know, a few weeks later, they called and said they decided to create a number two position, associate general counsel position, and asked if I wanted it. And so I, of course, leapt at the opportunity um, with two months of transactional experience under my belt at that point and uh, went in-house with the Sun. So th that was the process, and, and it was uh, 
you know, very short, really, all things considered, um, and given my lack of uh, experience, but it was, you know, it, it was a little frustrating. Um, you know, because anytime you have a goal and it's important to you and you know in your heart that it's what you want to do and, you know, things don't go, seemingly aren't going well um, in that regard initially, uh, it's, a, it's a little frustrating. But, um, you know, I just kept at it and, you know, decided to take leaps and make changes that were, were scary because when I um, left the firm I was at as a litigator, after you know being there four years, I, I did so with the understanding that I was starting over, you know, as a as a transactional attorney, as you know, um, a brand new attorney, you know, and I, I made the offer to do that because I was so uh, so determined yeah. to make this change and do what was necessary. Yeah, and I love it. I mean, I you know, this is about listening to your heart and listening to your gut. You know, you were extremely passionate about wanting to figure out how to get in with um, a sports organization. And um, I love that, you know, even though it was a relatively short runway to, to landing that first gig, um, you know, you were resilient and you kept at it. Um, you know, some some of the lawyers that I talked to, it takes them, you know, years, I mean, certain candidates that I've, been dealing with, you know, it might take them four years to get their first in-house role. And so it, it was incredibly fortuitous and lucky in that you were definitely in the right place at the right time. Um, but I think at the same time, too, it could be a little demoralizing <laughs> to, to not, you know, especially when, you know, you're clearly very high achieving and us high achieving lawyers tend to, you know, do everything right the first time. We're all perfectionists. We expect to like, you know, any efforts that we exert are going to be met with something positive on the other side and uh, it doesn't always happen that way so that's a really good good uh, point um when you were with the Diamondbacks uh you were one of only three or four women to hold the top legal position with the major league baseball club and to your knowledge and my knowledge you were the only openly gay person to do so with an MLB club further you were the only gay person woman or person of color to have reached the executive level at the Diamondback organization. Um, and it was, you know, while a wonderful thing, I'm curious how that experience was for you. Yeah, you know, um, very early in my life, I became very used to being the only, um, you know, growing up in the world that I grew up in, and, you know, we all grew up in, uh, people who uh, were from my era. And, you know, we talked about me meddling and, and swimming and, and for example, there, I was the first black person to try out for and make the swim team. And the very next day when I went back for practice, several of the, the kids had quit because their parents didn't want them swimming in the pool with me. So um, being, you know, I'm used, to, I, I, I grew up that way. And my, my parents taught me um, to not, to be resilient in that way. And, you know, it's certainly no different um, being the first and sometimes the only uh, in, in positions in business and certainly working in professional sports as a lawyer, um, you know, and the, 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 you know, some of the things that you mentioned, um, you know, being the first, that was a very long time ago. And, and one of the things that I was really happy to see over the years is more women 
move into positions in the legal departments for professional sports teams and more women leading those departments as the years have gone on. So that's been fantastic. Um, you know, so I, I, I just wanted to point out that there had been change, but, you know, it was tough, but for me, it was just like swimming, right? Um, and that experience is that I keep showing up because it's where I belong and it's where I want to be. And, you know, I, I, I bring the best version of my myself there and I do my best and I do my job and and um, importantly, try to encourage others and bring others along behind me. Yeah, I think that's the key um, is, is, you know, this willingness to you, you break whatever ceiling and then you kind of reach back and pull others up with you. That's the only way to make systemic change. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's the admirable. Um, you touched on this. You talked about the situation, um, the unfortunate and horrible situation of making the swim team and finding out most of your teammates quit um, because you are a black person. Um, which is reprehensible. And I, I know there have been other situations in your life, uh, having read your bio, that I would imagine contributed to your resilience uh, and your uh, intestinal fortitude and your confidence. Um, but I was wondering if there's like a specific person or a specific incident or a multitude of incidents, you know, are there certain places where you feel like you derive your resilience from? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, from my family, uh, particularly my my father, um, my grandmother. My grandmother was uh, the first black woman to become a supervisor at North America and Rockwell. Um, many, many years ago, uh, you know, she was born in 1916 and it's been gone for a while. So, um, you know, you, you can imagine back in the 50s, 60s, uh, you know, 70s, what, what that would have been like for her. Um, so I got a lot of that from them growing up. And then once I uh, was older and working, in fact, working in sports, you know, I had the the privilege. You mentioned that I served, I'm a trustee emeriti for the Women's Sports Foundation. Um, you know, Billie Jean King has been a tremendous uh, role model and inspiration for me. And it's difficult not to, you know, to sit across the, the boardroom table from her and, and not be inspired and uh, willing to, you know, she taught me to use my voice. You know, um, it, it was uh, challenging at first, being the only in often in, in a men's professional sport. And she taught me, it inspired me to use my voice and to, you know, not what well, I won't say not be afraid, but really to walk through that fear. That's what's so important is that people say, oh, you shouldn't be afraid. And I'm, I'm not a proponent of, of, of that because as human beings, I think it's difficult for us not to fear things. I think what's important is uh, our capacity to walk through that fear, to, you know, achieve our goals, whatever they may be, personal, professional. And, you know, from those three people in particular, I, I learned that. My my father, my, my grandmother, and, and Billie Jean King, uh, you know, is that we can't let fear of failure paralyze us and keep us from trying to achieve our goals, our dreams. Um, 
you know, that that leads to nothing but regret and and what if. And, you know, I I, I started, you know, early on thinking, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And the worst thing that can happen is that I'll fail. And there's no shame in that. And I learned that through sports, right? I mean, you know, in basketball and in swimming, all of it, you don't win all the time. But from those losses, you get, um, you learn lessons and you learn how to improve and there are opportunities for growth. And and so those people help me, help me understand that and help me um, to learn to walk through fear and to show up and, and do my best. Indeed. Yeah, no, sports is such a great um, teacher. I um, am. <laughs> it is. reminds me of a personal story. I um, at one point held the record in my county in Georgia for most saves in a season in soccer. I was a goalkeeper, which is nice. which is hilarious because I'm barely five foot. It's not about the, the height. It's about the heart. So. That's right. That's right. But not because I'm a particularly good soccer player. This is not me being braggadocious. It's because our team was horrible. We were the worst. And so they were getting so many shots on goal. <laughs> I had the record. For, like, I probably lost twice or three times as many uh, goals went in than I saved. But there were lots of opportunities. Um, and and the, that, that those failures of being, you know, on the worst team in the entire county um was humbling but it also kind of showed us you know what is the worst thing that can happen well you lost the game and then afterwards you eat your oranges and drink your water and go home and if you occasionally win it's all the more sweet um and maybe we won like twice um in in several seasons but i agree with you that that sports um and and you know teamwork can be um a very educational tool for for young people um the story you just told you know is is a perfect um representation of you know the fact that uh failure makes you better right yeah Yeah, you know to the person who's never experienced it because it's very difficult to get better um i'll do that i think your point about your point about um don't not feel the fear right feel it and then walk through it like push through it um to do the thing that you find difficult that's that's really great advice for any basically are just trying to grow um you share a story on your website on your on your consultancy website that um you mentioned about your dad how when you were 21 and you got the courage to come out to your parents that you're your dad, you know, made you go to a psychiatrist and like, what's wrong with you? Let's get you some help. Something's clearly wrong here, Nona, right? Um, and that's particularly poignant to me, given that, you know, you mentioned that your your dad was a role model and a, and a mentor. Um, how was that for you, given your closeness with him? It was painful. Um, you know, I, I was a daddy's girl, if you will. And, you know, I always wanted to make him proud and that, this part of me was un- unacceptable to him at that time was was very difficult and um you know it made me a little angry as well um you know it was hurtful uh you know but i wanted him to be okay and you know i could not and would not change who i was um so i went with him because it was what he needed. He didn't know it was what he needed. 
thought mm-hmm. it was what I needed, but I right. <laughs> because right. it was what he needed um, to, uh, you know, hopefully get comfortable with and become accepting of that part of who I was. And, you know, the psychiatrist told him, you know, she is fine. She does not have a problem. You are the one with the problem. And I never had to go back again. Yeah, I'm so happy that it's like, all right, you know, it could have gone the other way, right? It could have been like, "Mm, yes, there is something wrong with her. Um, And, you know, I can't just think about how kind of damaging that would be. But I'm so glad that the psychiatrist was like, Dad, this is your problem. This is not known as problem. Like, get your mind right. Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm happy to say that, you know, he, he came around and, you know, but, you know, my dad was, we all are imperfect people. And um, he loved me tremendously, you know, as like any other family, everything's not always perfect. But, you know, he was willing to do that for me, too, because he knew he had to do something. So right. Um, right. I, I it, it sounds like he, he came around eventually um, to, to sort of figure out that this this was definitely his his issue. So I did want to ask you, I mean, you've had all these different and varied experiences. You sat on the Jetic Council for the Diamondbacks. Obviously, come to DE and I work, you know, from your own lived experience. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, after this storied career in the sports, which seemed to be your first love, what uh, encouraged you or helped you come to the conclusion that you wanted to start your own DEI consultancy? Well, you know, I, I think it was a culmination of things, frankly. I mean, sports was and always, you know, it has been a love of mine, obviously, uh, given my background and the way in which I relate to the world in a place where I'm very comfortable. Um, you know, and having the opportunity to lead the D-Backs for Change Jedi Council uh, really gave me the opportunity to see how important this work is to me. I mean, it's always been important for me, which is one of the reasons I started uh, the Phoenix Women's Sports Association. Um, but I, I didn't realize, you know, that awakened something in me. And, and you know, I had an amazing run with the Diamondbacks and in sports, and I will always be grateful for that. And and, and I love my time doing that, you know, for 22 years. But starting the DEI work, it, it was a similar thing that happened, you know, back when the WNBA started, where there was a knowing for me that this is where I needed to switch my focus um, to full time uh, because, you know, it's time for me at this point in my life to uh, do work that can have a lasting impact and that can help make meaningful change in our world. I mean, I'm so proud of our youth today because they are vocal, um, they are brave, they often, you know, they put their time where it matters in terms of speaking up for meaningful and necessary change. And I can't just sit back and, and you know, sort of dip my toe in the water. I, I, I need to be in this space and do what I can uh, with the experience that I've, I've gleaned over, you know, these decades of life and, and working. Um, I, I need to use that to, to step in and, and see what I can do to help uh, change hearts and minds, hopefully, and, and 
you know, help people make systemic change in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you talked about this knowing that you seem to be a very intuitive person, and um, I'm sure that comes from life experience. And sometimes I talk to lawyers who, some of them have a very clear path, right? They knew they wanted to be a judge when they were three, right? And they're just executing, they're trying to get there. Um, others knew that they, you know, came to the conclusion in college that they wanted to be a, you know, data privacy lawyer, that had, that sort of thing. But I sometimes talk to folks, um, particularly on the junior side, the practice of law, who aren't really sure what they want to do. Uh, they don't know if they want to be partner. They don't know if they want to go in-house. They don't know if they like what they're doing. It's fine. You know, they were sort of following this path that they sort of laid out for them, and it made sense. You know, they're political science majors or English majors, and, like, this is what you do next if you don't want to teach, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so I'm curious what advice you would have for young people, those in our listening audience, who are trying to sort of find their way or, or, or figure out the knowing uh, piece of this? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, first of all, don't beat yourself up for being uncertain because we don't always know right away. Um, we know for sure when things present themselves, I think. Uh, sometimes we do know. I was not one of those people who were lucky enough to know the entire time. Um, so I would say, uh, don't beat yourself up. Um, trust your gut. You know, um, there is a knowing, I think, if you if you listen to yourself and, and, you know, you tap into, you know, what it is that brings you passion and joy and, you know, trust your gut on that. And it may be in practicing a certain area of the law. Um, it may be in doing something else with your legal degree. But trust your instincts. And, and then once you realize what it is you want to do, uh, be, uh, you know, be, be really, really um, intentional about doing it. Do your research. Do what you need to do to prepare. Um, that also requires some patience, but it does require a certain degree of, of uh, a persistence as well. Um, and, and, and then, then I would say, you know, don't be afraid to, or I won't say don't be afraid because I already talked about, it. I don't, I don't buy into that concept, but don't let fear keep you from pursuing what it is, you know, is your truth, what it is that you need to be doing. Amen. Don't, don't be afraid of the fear, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> Embrace the fear and let it drive you. Embrace the fear and let it drive you. I love that. That's great. Well, Nona, thank you so much for giving me your time and sharing me, sharing with me and our listening audience so willingly of your experiences. I know that they will find them valuable. I have found our time valuable, and I sincerely appreciate uh, you spending some time with me today. <music>